we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to bow with me uh, to pray. Father in heaven, we come to your word and we confess our weakness and pray that you would help us. We're weak, God, because first our sin still, even for many many of us after all these years, still makes us resistant to hear that which is true. Um, Second, we're weak in understanding because there are times when things are difficult for us to understand, to put together, to think through. So I I pray that you would help us to do that and and know you uh, more deeply, that we may love you more sincerely, more honestly. So be with us, I pray, even as we read and think together in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Exodus and chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, please. I want to read the first eight verses. Exodus chapter 19, please. Hear the word of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day... They came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord God called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, And brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This uh, marks one of the most significant events in all of history. Perhaps not the most significant event of all of history, but, but, but one of the most significant events in all of history where God is taking a group of People who had been slaves for generations, and he's going to constitute them to be a nation, to be his people, his representative people on the face of the earth. He's going to do that at this mountain, Mount Sinai, through this man, Moses. And so here uh, they are. And this, at this place, God, through Moses, makes covenant with them. You'll see in verse 5, God speaks of his covenant. In these days, the last number of weeks, we've been speaking a great deal about covenant. We've been talking about the fact that it was a form of, 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 of agreement. It was a form of binding parties in relationship that was well known in the days of, of Moses. It had a particular form. The form began with one who was the, the great king, if you will, the one who's initiating this covenant with his subjects, with people, the king coming and, and announcing who he is and announcing his history with the people. And he would do that so that they would 
would see who he was and, and, and be able to trust him. He would announce who he is. He was, he was in a sense, uh, give his qualifications for being the king and why they should be his subjects, why they should be in this particular relationship with him. He would then, this king, state the stipulations, the regulations, and what it meant to be in relationship with him. Uh, he would make vows to them. They would make vows to him on being in this relationship. There would be blessings known for faithfulness, that if you're faithful to this covenant, this would be true for you, these blessings. If not, this would be the curses, the curse that would come to you, the penalty, the sanction, if you will, for disobeying this covenant. And then he would speak, he would lay out to them uh, also this sense of, 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 of the solemnity of this covenant by pronouncing and participating in with them this oath curse saying that if either of us breaks this covenant, it will mean our death. Then there would be a ratification of this covenant in the sense that documents would be made and be kept for, for review and, and consideration to be a witness as to this particular covenant being cut, being made. Um, they would give signs so that in seeing those signs, they'd be reminded of the covenant. They would often commemorate all of this with a meal. And so this was a very significant thing. And now God comes, condescends, God comes, and he lays out his relationship with this people, Israel, by way of, of, of covenant. It, it begins with a preamble, a, a, an introduction, if you will, and, and it begins really before this particular passage. If you turn back to, to Exodus in chapter 6, we can see how all this really begins and then is continued on in this passage in chapter 19. In chapter 6 and verse 2, uh, we, we see God really laying out who he is. It says this, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself Known to them, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And so, 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 so God introduces Himself here to Moses. Moses knew Him. He had the burning bush experience with Moses back in chapter um, in, in chapter three and all of that. And so, so all of this. But God says, "I'm not coming to you out of the blue. I've I've already established relationship with this people through Abraham, through Isaac, and and through Jacob. I've already done that. And and they knew me uh, by my name, God Almighty. But now I want this people to know me as the Lord. And if you looked in your Bible, it's likely that that word Lord is in caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because when because it's, it's a reference to a particular Hebrew word, a Hebrew name for God, which we know is Yahweh, or really translated in, in Exodus in chapter 3 as I am. Now, now that expression for God, that name for God is used all throughout Genesis. It's used in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, all throughout Genesis and, and through the opening chapters of Exodus. Meaning, uh, this isn't the first time that this name is known to anybody. But God is saying to them, I'm going to let you now know what this name means. Because this is the name that I'm going to give to my people. That they will know me as I am. That is, as the eternal one. They will know me as the self-existent one. They'll know me as the self-sufficient one. They'll know me, I am. That's the name. That's the name they'll call on. And when they call on that name, the one who is, has always been, will always be, will come to them. 
This is their name for me, the name I give to them that they may really know me. Not just as the powerful one, but the one who is, the one who's self-existent, the one who's self-sufficient, the one who is eternal, the one upon whom no one can come against and thwart his will, this very one who is. He says, that, so, so I want you to know me like that. So he reveals himself like that as he does. And he, and he says that I want to establish my uh, covenant uh, with them. And, 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 and he had established this covenant with Abraham, you remember. And he made great promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great for a particular pur- purpose. And that purpose is so that you may be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you're going to be a blessing. I'm going to make you a nation so that you are going to be a blessing. And the way that you're going to be a blessing is that through you, Abraham, and your offspring, through you, all the families, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So God says, I have this global plan in mind, and it's all going to come out of this one man, this one family, then this one nation. Now, that was an interesting thing to promise to Abraham because he was old, his wife was old, she was barren, they had no children. And in order to have... uh, uh, a nation, he was going to have to have descendants and he was going to have to have land. He had none of that. And he had no real good prospects of getting any of that. And so he believes God, you see. And as he does, he enters into this covenant with God. He believes the very promises of God. The scripture says that he was declared to be, or God counted, his faith as righteousness. Meaning as he believed, as he looked outside of himself, as he says, I can't do this, as he looked outside of himself, then God established this relationship with him. And, and by way of faith, not by way of his works. But see, this wasn't the first covenant that God had entered into. We, we can go all the way back to Adam as we've talked. And there's this covenant of creation where God establishes himself as creator. And he makes himself known as creator, as the Almighty, as creator, as the one who's sovereign over everything. Because you see, what God is establishing even in his creation is a kingdom. He's establishing a kingdom, and a kingdom would need people, a kingdom needs land, and a kingdom needs rule. And so God has said, these will be my people and my land, and I will rule over them. My rule will be manifested through them. And remember, he set all of this up with Adam, and he says, I want you, Adam, to rule over the earth under me. I want you to have descendants by way of marriage. I want you to have descendants that that will populate and fill this earth. And he says, I want this relationship that, that, that you're going to have to be based upon your obedience to me. And we called it a covenant of works. This relationship with God based upon Adam being able to obey God. And we know he didn't. He didn't obey. And so God said the consequence of that is death. But yet we see, even in the midst there, of God being gracious to Adam. We see that he didn't kill him immediately, but killed another animal. We see that he said, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman, your wife, these that will come after, and the evil one, that not everyone will be sucked up into him. And he says, I'm going to make a promise that out of the seed of the woman will come redemption. That is, will come one who will defeat, will crush the head of this evil one. So I'm going to buy it back. I'm going to redeem by way of this one who's going to come from the seed of the woman. 
And so we see even this grace beginning to appear. And then we see the effects of sin on humanity, don't we? We, we see it uh, uh, after Adam and Eve, we see murder. We see all kinds of sin. In fact, it gets to the point where the scripture says that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. And we know that that kind of rebellion against God should bring the very judgment of God. And so God brings judgment by way of flood, but he graciously saves Noah and his family. And he graciously saves Noah and his family because God will be faithful to the promise that he's made, that he's going to redeem, he's going to buy back. Well, the flood will say that our sin really does deserve judgment, but God will say, I'm gracious and I'm going to be faithful to my promise. I really am going to redeem. And so he makes this promise, this covenant through Noah to really all of creation to say it's going to continue on. The seasons will come. Life will continue on until my plan is brought to completion. And so after Noah and his family depart from the ark, they are to do what Adam was to do in a sense that they were to fill the earth. They were to have descendants. They are to have dominion over the earth. They are to work it. And in a sense, God will rule. But still, it's different than with Adam in first creation because now sin is in the face of the earth. And so we see that sin continuing. So much so that a group of people, all the people of the earth seem to come together and they want to make a name for themselves. And so God has to scatter them. And then he calls this man Abraham and makes promises to him that you're going to be a great nation. And through all these nations of the world that are now developed here, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. What a great, what a great promise. And he says to Abraham, then, then, then the way you enter into, the way that you live in relationship with me is by faith. That's the relationship we have. By faith, trust me. And I'll deliver. In fact, in the midst of that covenant with Abraham, you remember, God swore he took the oath curse himself. Abraham had nothing to do with it. He was out of it completely. But, but God said, I will make certain, I will guarantee that my promises will be fulfilled. Abraham, you rest in me. Trust me. I'm going to take care of this. Well, now we come to this particular situation where, where the Israelites... Those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, most particularly, are now in Egypt. Remember how they got there? It was rather interesting. Um, ultimately, Jacob, son of Isaac, was the son of Abraham, had 12 sons. And those 12 sons, one of them was Joseph, you remember. Joseph got into a little trouble by his brothers, and they sold him into slavery. And as you're reading through the scripture, you're wondering, what's coming up with this? But what ends up happening is that Joseph, this one who was sold into slavery, actually ends up being prime minister of Egypt, second in command, right under the king. He's the prime minister, really, of all of Egypt. And it just so happens that the Pharaoh had had a, the king had had a dream, and Joseph knew what the dream meant, and it meant that there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so as prime minister, he, what he did wisely was save grain during the years of plenty, 
saving up for the years of famine. Then when the years of famine came, everyone came to Egypt to buy grain. So Egypt became very, very prosperous even during these years of famine because people came and gave them everything just to get grain. Interestingly, Jacob, who thought his son Joseph was dead, sent his sons to Egypt to get grain because Jacob and his family were experiencing that famine as well. And they come and they're reunited with Joseph. And in the being reunited with Joseph, the whole family moves to Egypt. And then the promises that God made to Abraham that you'll have descendants that you can't even count was fulfilled because they multiplied and multiplied. And there were so many descendants of those who were of Jacob, whose name was Israel, that the Egyptians feared that these Israelites would take over. And so they enslaved them. So that wouldn't happen. And then after a period of years, 400 years, just like God had promised to Abraham, they began to cry out, the people began to cry out to God. And he heard them. Now the question is, why did he hear them? Why did he respond to them? Well, he makes that known in Exodus in chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we read this. During those days... During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, when it says that God remembered, it didn't mean that God forgot. And he says, oh, thanks for reminding me. I should have written that down. Um... When the scripture uses this expression that God remembers, it means now's the time for God to act. When God doesn't remember, then he is not going to act. When God does remember, then he is going to act. So when the scripture says that he doesn't remember our sins, it doesn't mean that he's a little crazy, forgetful. It means that he's not going to act upon our sins. Right? And so when it says he does remember this, it means now's the time to act. Remember, he had said to Abraham centuries before, he says that your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, and then I'm going to bring them out. Well, now's the time to do that. And so providentially, they begin to cry out. God hears them on the basis of his covenant with Abraham. In a sense, when they cry out, he cannot say no because he's promised, and he'll be faithful to his promise. And thus, he comes now to, to um, deliver them. And, and so we find then the promise in Exodus chapter 6 that he will do that. Notice verse 5, he says, Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery to them, and I'll redeem you with outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I'll take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Notice, that didn't keep God from being faithful to his promise. He still came, and he still was faithful to his promise. You remember the story. God God delivers them out of Egypt. He does it through these ten plagues. 
uh, judgments, really, each one on various gods in Egypt. We could also even refer to them not only as judgments, but as nine mercies and one judgment. In other words, he continued to give Pharaoh an opportunity to repent. He didn't just come in and, and, and come up with the, with the final judgment, but he, he went through nine of them. And after each one of them, he continued and continued. And Pharaoh's heart was continually hardened. See, without a work of the Holy Spirit, just a bit of an aside, without a work of the Holy Spirit, God's pleas for us to repent will only make us increasingly bitter. Logically, you would think it would be opposite. I mean, we read this story and, and, and you think, Pharaoh, are you crazy? Why is it after what has just taken place that you won't get rid of this people and let them go? Why do you continue to hold on to them? And, and the answer is that's the sinfulness of sin. It continues to hold on to its own strength, its own ability, its own passions, even in the midst of the power of God. So it did it. So there you go. And I suppose if you're like me, you rather resonate with that. We have sometimes clung to our own sinfulness even in the midst of great, great, great despair and become bitter against God until, by His Spirit, He enables us to repent. So, that's the story here. That's the situation. So, so God says, God does all of this uh, with them and, and enables them to bring out their... There's probably no more dramatic statement. Oh, that's probably an overly dramatic statement. Um, in all of the Scripture... Then when God says, let my people go. My people. Why were they his people? They were his people because he said, they're my people. They were his people because he had made a promise to Abraham. And he made a promise to Abraham because he made a promise to Abraham. He said, this is how I'm going to do it. He said it wasn't because they were more numerous than everybody else. It wasn't because they were stronger than everybody else. It wasn't because of their righteousness, because they're a stubborn people, he throws in there. It wasn't because of anything according to their own merit or goodness. But he said, I simply loved them. That's why I'm doing it. They're my people. It was all his grace. A dramatic statement. They're my people. And again, for God to say that to a man like Pharaoh, why wouldn't he let them go? Why would he say, no, they're mine? But he did for a while. And then God said, I'll deliver you out of his hand. And and he did. Remember, they plundered Egypt. They came out and... um, God took them to various places to prove that this was all his work, as if the ten plagues didn't prove it was all his work. But but he took them to the Red Sea, and they couldn't get out. And they were utterly weak, and they even began to complain. Oh no, you brought us here to die. God said, no I didn't. Moses. And the Red Sea opened. And the miracle of miracles had dried enough for a few million people. Think of this. This isn't just a couple of families now. We're talking millions of people walking across the bed of a sea and the water had just parted. I think that's pretty cool that the water's parted. I think it's amazingly cool. 
that the ground was able to be walked upon by all those people. And then, as the armies of Pharaoh came, they all drowned, as you know, in the sea. And the people were able to look back and say, yes, God does deliver us. He will do it. He's faithful to his promises. But, but then they got to a place where there was just bitter water and they said, oh, we're so thirsty. What do we do? Well, God said, Moses, throw in this branch. It'll sweeten it. Did. And then another place where there was no water and God said to Moses, Moses, speak to the rock. Water will come. They had no food. God gave them manna and they looked on the ground and they say, what is it? God said, yes. Manna means what is it? Um, and so... Um, there it was, some food. And they said, well, we'd like some, we'd like some meat. And he said, oh, right. So the quail came. Uh, at every turn, every time they had a need, God met that need. They met the Amorites, the, 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 the enemies. And they said, how are we going to defeat these enemies? Well, Moses prayed. You remember that story. Moses prayed. And as he was able to pray uh, with his arms lifted, uh, the, 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 the um, Israelites were winning. And when he tired, uh, and his arms fell and his prayers fell off, then the Israelites began to be defeated. And so, so the priests, Aaron and Hur, lifted and propped it up uh, Moses' arms so he could continue to pray, and as he did. And so while you were watching the battle, you may say, oh, the Israelites were strong and they won. But if you looked at the prayer, you go, oh, yes, it was God who did it. So we see all of that, right? That God delivers them and he brings them finally into the land. Why? Because he's making a nation. He's making a nation and he's making a kingdom where it will be his people and his land under his rule. And there we have it. And so he gives them then this, this law. And we wonder about this law because it seemed so nice with Abraham. It seemed like it was all based on promise. It was all based on faith, not based on anything that we would do, not based on any merit at all. But, but it said, the scripture says that, that Abraham believed God and it was counted, given to him as righteousness. And so now why this law all of a sudden that seems so detailed, not only detailed, but seems so impossible? Why is it that God would give this law? We read it during our time of confession, I suspect, most have heard it, these ten words as they're put in the scripture, ten commandments plus various stipulations that will come out of that. Why then um, these, these ten words? We, we notice how, how God prefaces all of this. He does it by way of covenant. In chapter 19 that we, we read earlier, God prefaces all this by way of providing information about who he is is, notice in verse uh, 3 of what we read, middle of verse 3, God says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he's saying, listen, I've delivered you. You didn't deserve it, I I delivered you. This is who I am. Don't you think I'm trustworthy? Don't you think you can believe me now after what I've done? Now, now, God didn't really need to do that. We had to believe him anyway. But he says to this people, he says, all right, look at what I've done. I, I delivered you. I bore you on, just like on eagle's wings. I gave you this cloud to lead you by day, this fire to sustain you, to keep you warm even at night in the, the crazy desert temperatures and all of this. My very presence with you, the Red Sea incident, the, the water and the, and the food and, and, and also the enemies, uh, what else? Look what I've done. I've brought you to this mountain. And, um, and he says, now, if 
You'll obey my voice. Keep my covenants. Here's the blessing that will come to you. You'll be my treasured possession. And God adds in the midst of that so we understand him. He says, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. In other words, God is saying, I can have anyone I want. All the earth is mine. Do you understand what it means to be my people? Out of all these people, I'm going to refer to you as my treasure. That which I have that makes me most happy. To use in such a way that it's for my, my pleasure. I often think of being God's treasured possession as, as being the change in my pocket um, that nobody knows I have but me. And I get to use it however I want to. You know, it's my Snickers bar money, basically. I never put that on the credit card because Karen can see that. All right? In fact, we're going to sue the grocery store because Karen says every time she sends me there, oftentimes at the end of the list of all the things I buy, there's a candy bar. And I go, how'd that happen? Um, but, but, but just that you spend for your, you know, it's yours, and you spend it. For good things, but you spend it for things that, that make you... And there's a sense in which God is saying, that's who you are, is my treasured possession. You're the one I have in my pocket. You're the one that I love. You're the one, you're the one I can't wait to be with. You're the one that I will, I, I will be with in such a way that you, among all the peoples of the earth, are my treasured ones. You belong to me like no one else, like nothing else belongs to me. My treasured possession. He says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Priests are go-betweens. Priests stand on behalf of another. And he says, you're going to be, for me, the very, my very representative of all of the earth. The people are going to look at you and see me. People are going to come to me through your testimony, through your witness. You're going to stand for them. Out of you, ultimately, will come this one who will crush the head of the serpent and bless all the nations of the world. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, and you're going to be a holy nation set apart from all others. And I'm going to give you laws in order to set you apart. Some of them might seem odd to at least future generations, but, but, but I'm going to give you these laws, and they're going to set you apart from all of the people because you're my holy, set-apart nation to be holy. That's who you're to be. And then God, in an amazing way, after the people say, yes, we'll do all of this, God then puts on a tremendous show on the mountain. Notice um, in verse 16, it says, on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people at the camp trembled. God is saying, okay, I've told you my name. I've done all these things. Now, one more time, I want, to, I want you to see who I am. Here's who I am. And everything shook. And there was great thunder. You know, there's a wonderful terror in knowing God. There's a wonderful fright in knowing him. We, we sang this morning a song that his title is A Beautiful, Scandalous Night. Yes, those kinds of words go together when we speak of, and when we think of, uh, of God. Um, John Newton wrote in another song that we sang about Jesus, we'll talk about in a minute, that he's hushed the law's loud thunder. He's crushed, quenched Mount Science, uh, Sinai's 
uh, flames. You think, oh yes, God says, this is who I am. Now remember, this is who I am. I'm bringing you in relationship with me. So he, he lays all of that out and then he gives them this law. Why this law? Why this law when it's based on faith? Why this law now? Well, a couple of things. Number one, this isn't the same as Adam faced in what we call the covenant of works. It's in the context of a covenant of grace. It's in the context of God saying, you're my people, I've delivered you out already. So these are now the stipulations of this covenant. Every covenant has stipulations. Every relationship says, this is how we're going to relate to one another. And the, and the stipulation should be appropriate to the parties. And they are appropriate to the parties. Because God says, I'm God. So what is your appropriate conduct towards me? Your appropriate conduct towards me is to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your appropriate conduct to me is to treat me, to honor me as God. Therefore, you'll have no other gods before me. How could you have any other gods before me? I'm God. You're going to be in relationship with me. Realize that I am God. And you're to worship none other, follow none other. And you're to worship me as I truly am. Don't think of me and, and think of who I might be and make an image of me and draw it out and build it and worship that because you'll get me wrong. You can't. I can't be contained in any of your original thoughts. And so, take me as I reveal myself to you. Worship me as I am. And watch my name. Honor me with all of your thoughts of me, all your speaking of me. In fact, the day will be set aside. that will be a sign that you really do trust me, that you really do believe in me as you worship me and rest in me and take all of your sustenance from me. And then he says, I want you now in your character to be like me. I want you to love as I love. And so he lays this out, first in the context of family, fathers, mother, children, and then in relation to each other, not to murder, and then to be faithful in this marriage relationship and not commit adultery, and in relationship to others, not to steal from them, not to lie to them. And then he gets the one that catches us all. He says, now I don't want you to do any of the, other, any of the, any of the others. I want you not to covet. It's that one that really gets it. That gets us to the heart. We might be able not to steal... We might be able not to actually speak a lie. We might be able to not commit adultery. We might be able to honor our parents outwardly. We might be able to love them in some way and treat our children well in the context of family. We, we might even be able to, to, to look as if we're honoring God by showing up at things, by giving things, by doing acts that he approves of that we might call acts of righteousness and all of that. But the question is, is it coming from your heart? And that's what gets us. Never killed anyone. But I've sort of wanted to see some people eliminated. <laughs> right? Never stolen, perhaps. Well, that's not true, I have. I don't do it regularly anymore. <laughs> but even if I don't steal, that doesn't mean I don't want what you have. Committed adultery, lust. Have I loved my parents? All of that from the heart, you see. And that's what gets us. And, and so we look at this law and we say, God, if this is what it takes to be in relationship with you, then I'm sunk. It's amazing to me that the, that the people are so quick to say, all these words you have spoken, we will do. I'm sure I would have joined the chorus, but, 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 I, but I just, wow. Really? 
don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm singing some of our songs, which are that blunt and, and that upfront, I understand the, the, the sense of the song. I understand what the, the songwriter is trying to get us in a spirit of worship to say and to do, God, you're worthy of all my obedience. God, you're worthy of my glorifying you. And, and therefore, I want to say that I really want to worship you and glorify you and you alone. And even as those words come out of my mouth, there's a hush that comes over me that says, oh, forgive me. Right. I know this is what I should want, and, and every once in a while it's true probably, but, but, but even then, not utterly. I know my own heart. And so we read this and we go, God, how is it that I could ever be that and thus be in relationship with you? Why does he give us this law when we can't do it? Why does he give us this law when... It's impossible for us. Why does he give us this law in the midst of what we've been thinking through of a covenant of grace that he receives us by faith? Why this law? Well, first, whether we can do it or not doesn't make his holiness any less true. Whether we can do it or not doesn't make being in relationship with him by way of holiness any less true. He is holy, period. And to know him to be in relationship with him because he is holy requires holiness. Secondly, it's fascinating, it's helpful, it's relieving, it's gracious that right after God gives these stipulations of the covenant and fleshes them out. When we get to chapter 25, he begins a process of saying, all right, now build a sanctuary. In this sanctuary, make sure there are a number of things, but at least two. Number one, an altar. And number two, something called the Ark of the Covenant. The altar is a place where you'll make sacrifice, where something will die. It'll have all kinds of purposes. Sometimes it'll be all-consumed, this sacrifice, and it'll be an atoning sacrifice. I'm going to take it all. It dies in your place. Other times it'll be a peace offering, and, and, and you'll, you'll barbecue it, and we'll all eat it together because we'll be in peace together, at peace together. But, but if it all based on this burnt offering, where it'll all be taken, and, 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 and thus something will die in your stead. Why is that necessary? It's necessary because of what it takes to be in relationship with me. These stipulations, these laws, they come and they condemn you. So grab a hold of these laws and grab a hold of your lamb and come to me. And these laws will break you. Paul said of covetousness, it killed him. And he said, now offer this. Because you see, just because these stipulations exist and, and we're to obey them doesn't mean that God has a way, doesn't mean that God doesn't have a way in which he will fulfill them for us. They're still true. This is still right. To live in the rule of God, this is still it. And so you see, what happens? We know what happens. What happens is in the fullness of time, one comes. Notice how... The Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians in chapter 4. <clears throat> verse, verse 4. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave but a son, and of a son then an heir through God. In other words, this law breaks us, this law brings us to our knees, this law convicts us of sin. No one can be justified by way of this law, none of us, because we sin. So what's our hope? Our hope is that God will make good on his promise. Our hope is that God will do it. Our hope is that God will take everything about his promise, everything about his covenant, and he will fulfill it. He was trying to show that to the, Egyptian, to, the, to the Israelites as they left Egypt. He said, listen, why am I doing this? Well, because I made a promise to do this. Are you helping me at all? Not really. Did you turn the uh, Nile into blood? No. Did you cause all the gnats to come into the beds of the Egyptians? Did you slay the firstborn of the Egyptian households? Was it your blood that was sprinkled over the doorpost so that your firstborn sons would be saved? No. God said, I did all of that. Now trust me. Now here's who I am. I'm holy. If you're going to be in a relationship with me, there must be holiness. So we read it and it convicts of sin. He says, oh yes, by the way, to be in relationship with me, here's how it works. There's a representative, a priest, who will represent you before me. And there's a sacrifice that will be made so it will be its death, not yours. And a day will come when all this will come to fruition. All this will come to completion. And it does to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He obeyed the law perfectly. He did it. He was born under it. He obeyed it perfectly for us. And then he took its curse as Isaiah the prophet would speak of this one who was to come, as the New Testament writers spoke of this one who had come, all our iniquity was laid upon him. So everything those little lambs stood for, everything every one of those sacrifices stood for, Jesus fulfilled. And so God, you see, then could be both just and the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. Do you remember, last Sunday I said that when God justified Abraham by faith, he created a huge problem for himself. The huge problem was, how can a holy God justify, say, a person is righteous, when that person isn't? Well, here's how. Romans in chapter 3, verse 21. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, big word. It could be translated as atoning sacrifice. What it means is that it is sufficient to satisfy, to quench, to exhaust the wrath of God, meaning that once that sacrifice is made and accepted by God, then there is no case against us anymore. It's gone. Okay? It's that complete propitiation means that it exhausts any case against us. It just simply takes it away. 
Bible uses all kinds of metaphors, like God throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. He puts them behind his back. He buries them in the sea. Whatever metaphor you want to use to say that he remembers it no more. He doesn't act towards us according to our sins anymore. How can he do that? How can he justify us? Well, because Christ has taken. So he speaks of Christ like this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, that God is just. Because in his divine forbearance, that is his patience, he passed over former sins. How could he do that? Well, because he knew what was to come. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Jesus now. You see, this law breaks us, convicts us of our sins. Purpose, send us to Christ. Purpose for them was to send them to the sanctuary with lamb. Purpose for us, send us to Christ, the very lamb of God who takes away our sins. But there's one other purpose, and I'll just speak to it quickly. And that this is still the will of God for us. This is still God's holiness. This is still who God is. But now you see, as those redeemed, as those who have sins forgiven, as those who have the Spirit of God in us, he now sends us back to this law. And he says, obey this. Not to achieve your own righteousness. Not in your own strength. But now by way of the Holy Spirit. And so the same weakness when we read of this law that sends us to Christ for forgiveness, is now the weakness that sends us to the Holy Spirit for help. If we first read it and we say, I'm a sinner, I'm sunk, we go to Christ's forgiveness. Then we go back to the law and we say, "Ah, I'm weak and a sinner, how will I ever obey, how will I ever please God? And he sends us to the Holy Spirit who says, I will give you help. You know, many of you, the verse, I live on, Psalm 81.10, It's a covenant verse. God speaks of his covenant by way of saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he tells the people how they're to live before him. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So I want you to live like that. Your posture never changes. We come to the law and we open our mouths and say, God, forgive me. I'm weak. I trust in Jesus, his blood. We come to the law and we say, God, I desire to please you. And we open our mouths wide and he gives us strength. This law is there not that we would by our own strength and righteousness merit God's salvation. It's there to break us, to send us to Christ. It's there to teach us and send us to his spirit. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That you would be with us, that you would help us. That we would never think it's of us, that we would always know it comes from you. But yet, that we would still desire to follow after you. And to please you. Be with us. We pray deeply today, God, for those who are suffering in our congregation who need with mouths open wide your help for Jim Van Father as he recovers from this mild heart attack he had this week and procedure to put in the stints uh, Father we pray that you would bring healing to him we dearly love him 
pray for Melissa Foster, Father, as she continues to recover, that you would be with her and give her strength. Uh, we pray this week, God, for um, those who will be uh, sharing our church house and living here so that they uh, need not live on the streets. And so, Father, we pray for this family promise ministry that you would bless the folks who come through these doors, that they would know your presence and that we would be faithful to you in serving them and loving them and caring for them. Give us strength and give us a deep sense of love. Father, we thank you for Anna Grace Heingardner born this week to Kevin and Brittany. And Father, we pray for that little girl that she would be a great blessing. And for her parents that you would give them help as they raise her. Thank you for these glimpses that your covenant faithfulness continues and we shall fill the earth and subdue it. Father, be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. And please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. first